jiffy woman just won't do A hot water cornbread woman A jiffy woman just won't do A hot water cornbread woman And a jiffy woman just won't do She'll take your calculator and throw it out door Cause she still counts to 20 on her fingers and toes She's a hot water cone red woman A jiffy woman just won't do A hot water cone red woman And a jiffy woman just won't do Coming to you from the warm and cozy studios of <laughs> WLXLLP FM Lexington, Lexington Community Radio. This is Hot Water Cornbread, Kentucky Food Radio. After how many shows we now have a theme song, it seems. We're here every week with our take on Kentucky food, culture, and cuisine in the bluegrass with your hosts, author and host of the wonderful blog and website, <laughs> SavoringKentucky.com. It's Rona Roberts and chef and owner of Bluegrass Restaurants, Holly Helen Wallace Station, Windy Corner, Smithtown Seafood, Midway Bakery. It's Chef Weta Michael. I'm Chris Michael, and without further ado, I'll turn it over to Rona and Weta. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Wita. Hi, Rona. Hi, Chris. I'm telling you, our studio is great today. It's it's not only warm as usual, but it's warm with hum with good humans who are going to be on this show. So, shall we say hi to Crystal, our poet yes. laureate, who's with us? Hello. Yes. Good to be back. It's wonderful to have you back, and I think Chris picked that song just for you, Crystal. <laughs> a good pick. He, he, Hot water cornbread woman. A jiffy woman just won't jiffy do. Jiffy woman won't, just won't do. So uh, we have so many things to talk about this week. Let's go. Yeah, let's get started. Yes. We start with best bite or sip of the week. You want to go first, Weedy? You look ready. I'm ready. I, um, well, I had a bunch of stuff that I really thought turned out great, um, for one of the most interesting things I had this week was is called bigos, which is the national dish of Poland, and um, it's it was a it's a stew and it's made with sauerkraut and carrots and lots of rich stock, and then it has like lamb, duck, pork belly, mm. uh, rabbit. It sounds like burgoo, but it's not quite burgoo. It's a really different dish, and it turned out great. And I loved that, and we also made borscht, which was really good. Um, not a vegetarian borscht, a meat borscht with salt pork and all kinds of other stuff in it was great. And um, we did we tried our hand at pierogies, and the potato pierogi with onion and cheese was my favorite. And uh, then we made an eggplant caviar this week that was really good called Gavesh, which was um, made with apples and carrots, which sounds weird for eggplant, but it was delicious, really, really good. And which mm. cuisine is that, Wida? Gavesh? It was Russian. Well, Gavesh is uh, Russian, and... So it was a Russian and Polish menu this past week, and I think people were surprised at the diversity of the cuisine. I think a lot of times folks, when you say Russian and Poland, they think it's just like potato dumplings and like slow-cooked beef or Sour cream. Beef I or think of sour cream. Sour cream. <laughs> um, 
But Russia, especially when Russia was the USSR, um, you know, has one of the mm. most diverse cuisines in the world. Mm. I mean, it's got it's the Russian steppes. It's on the Silk Road. It's mm. the way to China. It's you know, it's on borders Turkey. It's incredible the diversity of food in Russia. It's really a fabulous cuisine. But that's my best bite. I don't want to go on and on. I want to hear from Crystal. <laughs> well, my best bites of the week um, have kind of been in our test kitchen over at the Wild Fig. We've been playing around. So the one I'm most excited about that I can't stop talking about is the sorghum latte. Yeah. Um, and we finally got some some Kentucky sorghum. Um, so that's now on the menu, and we're really excited about it. Sorghum latte. So you steam the milk with sorghum? Steam the milk with sorghum, a little bit of raw sugar. Oh my gosh, that sounds great. It reminds me of those mornings at my grandmother's house. You know, it was okay in our house to give kids coffee, but it had to be, you know, real sweet and real, real milky. So it's the most wonderful thing that reminds me of. Oh my gosh, that sounds delicious. (laughs) So she's using our good friend Randall Rock's country country rock rock sorghum, sorghum. which Weta also uses in restaurants. Well, plus Randall's such a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to be using that. that was, that's, I guess, my all-time best bite of the week. Mm. There's a few others. Chris. Oh, let's see. I had a sip. Um, my favorite, I think, this week was the new, uh, it's a relatively new beer from West Sixth Brewing. It's their Imperial Stout. Very good for a cold winter's night. Um, Is this the one called Snake Eyes? Is that different? Yeah, Snake Eyes, Imperial Stout. Yep. Very fortifying. Fortifying. Good stuff. What a good word. I had two best bites. One exotic. It was um, the avocado toast on gluten-free bread from Third Street Stuff, mm-hmm. which I they are the people who taught me the whole idea of avocado toast. I had no idea about it. This is just smooshed up avocado with uh, lemon juice and olive oil and salt and pepper, and they put a little cayenne. Of course, you could put anything. Um, then just put on a piece of toast instead of peanut butter or something, and it is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, and my homegrown bite was our good friend Travis Hood's new breeding project, pork, uh, red wattle crossed with Hereford pigs, I believe they are. Um, pastured, just pastured ground pork is splendid. Oh, that sounds great. I think that breeding project of Travis's is going to be the best, the best, the best, the best ever. I can't wait to try that. I haven't even tried that. You've been squirreling that away. You've been hiding that <laughs> delicious pork. Well, we there. missed, we we all missed the bacon. There were, there were 26 packages of bacon a week ago, Saturday at the farmer's market from this experiment. And of course they, I don't even know how many seconds they lasted, but there are no more. So the pastured pork, though, there's still plenty, the mm. ground pastured pork. Mm. Give that a shout. Well, we have Crystal here with us today, and we are going to start the discussion off with bread. We were going to talk about this um, last week, and we decided to put it off because of how, what a beautiful poem you had to read, and some of your thoughts about bread, Um, and it's kind of an elemental aspect of, 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 of food we take it for granted and right now bread's gotten a bad name and that's why i thought we better do a show about it because people are all like i'm going gluten-free i can't eat bread i could never eat bread and there's so many great breads that don't have gluten and so many ways to think about bread it's the staff of life as we say so yeah and this idea of breaking bread 
Mm-hmm. It's going to sit with somebody. You're going to let's break bread sometimes is what I hear a lot of people say. Yeah, it's a fellowship. It's an act mm-hmm. of fellowship. And that is um, one thing that I've always felt sad about in the restaurant industry is that the bread baskets gone the way. There are fewer and fewer bread baskets offered, but they have deep philosophical roots in hospitality. So the day I don't have a bread baskets Holly Hill Inn, you know that's the day I'm shutting that restaurant down. <laughs> um, but I agree with you, Crystal. I think that breaking bread together is an act, an ancient human act of mm-hmm. brotherhood. So um, an important, important act of hospitality, whether you're in business or just at home. It doesn't right. matter. Right. And one of the things that I was thinking about when you all talked about talking about bread last week was just the spiritual uh, aspect of it. Every culture in the world has a bread, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, fufu in Africa or injera bread or cornbread or uh-huh. yeast breads. Um, every culture from every socioeconomic um, group has bread of some kind. And the oldest recipe that we know, the, some of the oldest recipes, and I made, it, I made a joke before the show that the oldest human re- written human recipes in the Bible, that's actually not true. There are min- much older recipes written in Apicus and um, other books of the antiquity. But our oldest recipe that we have, that we know as humans that's written or otherwise, is one for bread. And um, in antiquity and, and bef- pre-antiquity, Um, we used to ferment all kinds of things together. And, you know, before we had vessels, we used stones next to burning fires. And, uh, as we grew vessels, we baked bread right in the vessel. And in fact, the way we started making beer was by fermenting bread. And so I've always thought that was really interesting. And the first beer that people drank was so thick. It was like eating bread soaked in bread. Beer wasn't always a clear liquid. It was like was it, it like th- batter? It was like batter. Wow. Yeah, their first beers. Wow. The Romans drank tons and tons of beer. <gasps> so I've, I've always been mm. fascinated by bread. Well, well, Crystal, you have a poem for us. Yeah, this is a poem called Bread by W.S. Merwin, and he wrote this poem for Wendell Berry. Oh, great. Wendell Berry is about to get a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Book Critics Circles. Cr- Book Critics Circle. Cool. Bread. Each face in the street is a slice of bread. Wandering on, searching somewhere in the light, the true hunger appears to be passing them by. They clutch. They have forgotten the pale caves they dreamed of hiding in, their own caves, full of the waiting of their footprints, hung with the hollow marks of their groping, full of their sleep and their hiding. Have they forgotten the ragged tunnels they dreamed of following in, out of the light to hear step after step, the heart of bread to be sustained by its dark breath and emerge to find themselves alone before a wheat field, raising its radiance to the moon. Oh, that was that's great. They need a glass of beer to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal, I. Be, this is unusual, but last week we got to see this poem, and so I read it a couple of times, maybe three. And I wonder, I was trying to think how the caves and the darkness in the in the middle um, stanzas 
relate to bread? Do you have a thought about that? Are we in Plato world, or what are we doing? Um, I'm not sure exactly. I hadn't thought about sort of analyzing the poem. I kept thinking about that more than likely, as much as Wendell Berry, um, I, I think he enjoys speaking as much as he does writing. So I imagine that there was a conversation uh, oh. between Merwin and, and, and Barry, and that that is a part of a conversation oh. that they had been having. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of peeking itself. in mm-hmm. a little bit. Oh, yeah. that's, that's very interesting way to think about it. I can't wait to ask him. If this poem was written in 93 um, and was part of uh, Merwin's collection um, that came out then. So I want to find out. I'm going to ask Wendell. Yeah, no kidding. I love that. That is an absolutely beautiful poem. Well, let's take a little break, a little station break. This is um, Hot Water Cornbread. We're on WLXL 95.7, and I'm Weta Michael. I'm here with Rona Roberts and Crystal Wilkinson, and when we come back, Rona has a special recipe for bread for us. Okay. Tempo. Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread It's not the barley or the wheat It's not the oven or the heat That makes this bread so good to eat It's the kneading and the sharing That makes the meal complete Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread Breaking bread Breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread Upon the water bread is cast The last is first, the first is last For everyone who eats this bread There are thousands, maybe more, that will be fed Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread Breaking bread, breaking bread We are gathered here together to break bread And gathered here together <laughs> With Johnny studi- Cash in the, st- in the studios of WLXL LPFM 
We are Hot Water Cornbread Kentucky Food Radio with Chef Wita Michael and Rona Roberts with our guest this half hour is Crystal Wilkinson of Wild Fig Books and a great poet and great friend. So welcome back. Crystal has so many identities, but we want to ask you, Crystal, right now to, in, to be in your wild fig proprietor identity and talk about bread there. And also you told us a little interesting tidbit during a break I want you to repeat so everyone can know. Yeah, I mean, bread is something that we talk about a lot. At the, you know, every Since we put soup, it's, you can't really have bread. I guess you could have bread with a latte. Of course, you've got... You'll have your our wonderful sweet potato muffins, which come from Midway School Bakery or mm. some of the other baked goods. Um, but when we started having soup, uh, cornbread was what came to mind. Mm. So we have a variety. It's usually a new kind of cornbread every week, oh, neat. depending on what the soup is. So sometimes it's cornbread, sometimes it's French bread. Um, and you were talking about the uh, the avocado toast. Mm-hmm. We have one too, and and our avocado toast has a little bit of lemon pepper on it it has radishes on it and oh. shaved parmesan on the top oh, oh my yeah goodness that sounds great it's so good so who invented avocado toast i don't Do we know, know i've never heard of it before you guys talking about it today i well, mean people come in the store all the time and say i have avocado toast at home how are you going to make it different and then we give it to them and they go kind of wild but i guess <laughs> I it's been it. around um it is so good I, and i only have known about it for two or three months i have to say it's awesome yeah hmm well, Wita has asked me to um, talk a little bit about a kind of bread that can be made at home. I think this is a revolution. This was a revolution in the home cook, home kitchen about 2007 so. uh, when beloved food writer for the New York Times, Mark Bittman, featured the bread of a baker named Jim Lahey from a, a bakery in, in New York City called Sullivan Street Bakery, and it's a no-need bread. So it's pretty easy on the home cook. It's the genius of this bread is in this very long, slow fermentation. It's 18 to 24 hour fermentation process. Um, and the bread itself has, um, it has flour, salt, a tiny, tiny bit of yeast and water as its only ingredients. And it requires the home cook to have a cast iron or some other kind of very, very high heat resistant um, covered pot. In that pot, while the bread bakes after its long rest and a few little things you fiddle with it, um, it, in that pot, essentially what Jim Lai figured out, it's possible for the home cook to recreate a tiny micro version of the big brick ovens and so forth from from European bakeries. So what pops out, not always, it's possible to fail with this bread, I discovered in many times of making it, but most of the time what pops out is a loaf of bread that is unbelievably wonderful with a crust that is uh, like artisan bread from any great bakery. And it's got a lot, I mean, Rona's made this for me before, and it's got a lot of holes in it. It's like Mm -hmm. super light and super Mm -hmm. chewy on the outside, super... Light and airy and, and holy on yeah. the inside. Yes, Bobby Ann Mason's mother wouldn't have liked it. Do you all remember in Bobby Ann Mason's um, memoir, Clear Creek? Clear Springs. Clear, Clear Springs. She talks about um, you know, she fell in love with French bread and the chewy bread. And then her mother 
just hated it. She wanted bread soft, like Wonder Bread, because uh-huh. having had hard, all kinds of hard breads as a child mm-hmm. with, in a family where there wasn't much money, it was a miracle to have this soft, soft Wonder bread, bread, Rainbow Bread. Um, so the Jim Lahey bread, which has also been called a lot of a lot of its a lot of times it's referred to as Bitman bread, um, but it's technically Jim's Jim's invention. We put a link already on our Facebook page, the Hot Water Cornbread Facebook page, to the recipe. The New York Times now says it's one of their most requested recipes in all of history. Um, oh wow! So <laughs> it's a great bread. I mean, it is a delicious bread. I have one question for you, Rona. When you're making, so it's easy to figure out the dough. It's very simple recipe. Do you rise the bread, raise the bread in the same, like cast iron kettle no, that you cook it no. in? How do you do that? You, you punch mix it, it down and shape it. No, you mix it in a glass bowl. Um, or I do mix uh-huh. in a glass or ceramic bowl. Um, put it in a fairly warm place, but it does. You don't want it to really hurry, um, and so you leave it for this long sit. I'm short. I'm rushing through the steps here. No, that's um, okay. And when it reaches its its stage where you're going to um, begin moving it to the oven, you put it out on a floured cloth, um, and you don't really knead it. You sort of fold it over a little bit and let it rest again. Uh, for I've forgotten thirty minutes, forty-five minutes, uh-huh. I think, um, and then you're while meanwhile you're heating your oven to its highest heat to five hundred or five hundred and fifty with your covered skillet or Dutch oven, a Dutch a, a cast iron Dutch oven with a built-in handle is the very best vessel because that handle won't is that what ruin. you use? Yes, it yeah. is what I okay. use. Um, I actually have two different. I can I can do two at a time and have, um, but you put that in the oven and you wait at least thirty minutes uh, longer if you've got it. Then when you're ready to put the bread in the oven, that's the only really kind of dicey part to me of the entire enterprise. You're supposed to with this blazing fiery uh, pot in front of you. You're supposed to pick up the towel with this oh. bread in oh, it and gosh. flip it over and dump it straight into the pan. So uh-huh. we've had a few, uh, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe two-thirds of ours have been sort of off-kilter because it's very hard to land right in the center. Do you grease and the pan? No, the pan is not greased. It's so hot that it doesn't stick. Oh, I, at least wow. I think that's the uh, the explanation because yeah. there's no... There's no oil in the bread either. Right. Um, it's a completely lean recipe. Yes, it is. It is. Um, and so then it bakes for 30 minutes to 35 minutes. It depends on your oven and your pot. And then uh, with the cover on, then you take the cover off and it bakes, an, or we could probably say roasts, um, again for another uh, 10 or 15 minutes to get the crust to this. Yeah. Jim Lahey likes it dark chestnut brown. I ended up liking mine more caramel brown. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So, Crystal, you said you guys were serving soup down at Wild Fig. What kinds of soups are you serving? Different ones each day? Um, different ones, sometimes more than one a day. But we've had chili's been popular lately. So we've got chili. We've had white chicken chili, or fixed tomato bisque. Oh, nice. We're going to do some kind of squash soup yeah. soon. Uh, a root stew. Yeah. Do you, are they... Um, a mix, some days vegan, vegetarian, some days with meat, or they, do they all have meat stock bases? They have all had meat so far, um, but we want to do a straight, I used to be a vegetarian, but we want to do at least a vegetarian, and the roots do the next one I make. Yeah, will it's going to uh, be vegetarian. Yeah. Are, you yeah. the sh- are you the soup cook? Yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> of course. 
course. We just oh added my a gosh, <laughs> get yourself down to Wild Fig. I know. We can't, we can't actually, we don't have time to introduce Crystal with all of her many identities, and now we're going to add soup cook. She's a true Renaissance woman. <laughs> yes, I'm not is. laughing about that. That is true. <laughs> Crystal know. is a Renaissance person. I mean, you are. You're an inspiration. You are, I mean, just in the way you in, engage and never quit on your creative life as a writer and, I don't know, to open up go full on into business and open up this bookstore and put and a kitchen teach. in it. And She's teaching yeah, over there. Professor, Maria, it's really important. Yeah, professor, department chair, I don't know, <laughs> grandmother, mother. And it's also, kind of crazy. One of the things I've become increasingly aware of is Crystal has a humanitarian presence on Facebook, and I'm also not teasing about this. She's grinning at me. But she calls us to our better selves on Facebook in, um, in her page, Crystal Wilkinson, so people can, you know, find you and see what you're saying. Um, what she and, means is there's always a fight that I start. It's kind of like I put you don't something start out and fights. then I back away and people <laughs> kind of go crazy and have these People discussions. feel free to fight on Facebook, and that's one reason I don't do Facebook. <laughs> I don't think everything that runs through your mind should be put on the internet. <laughs> Crystal has recently been championing the, uh, or, well, let me say it the other way. You've been opposing the publication of children's of a one or more I'm not sure two, about that there's two, two particular children children's books, books that make um, it seem that slavery was a happy condition um, so it's from the per, it's from the perspective of George Washington I think or is it George Washington pers- from the perspective of Hercules uh, who was the slave who who was the chef of George Washington's uh, based on a real person um, so the book uses Hercules and his daughter. Um, but they were slaves, and uh, he actually ran away. So I don't think he was very jolly. And I'm happy. sure he wasn't that happy yeah. being a slave. Yeah. Oh, gee, you know, it's a, it's a, um, that's a fascinating subject that I would love to talk sometime about on this show. Is Hercules and Thomas Jefferson's chef, who was, you know, the African American tradition in the White House of mm-hmm. being and and cooking and and and, and, and bringing, I mean incredible bringing the world into being the, fine yes. accomplished chefs yes. and being enslaved and being the chef in the white house i mean it's an incredible story both of those um chefs have incredible life stories mm-hmm. yeah i agree yeah I, well i'm with you on that one so that's what, yeah <laughs> maybe i have to go on facebook <laughs> after all you'll be proud of crystal every time you're I'm on always facebook. proud of her <laughs> i know also i'm just proud of you for ste- stepping out and saying what you think i mean you're right when you're right, you're right. We thank you, Crystal, thank for you, being thank with you us. It's always And for great. doing so much. You do so much. And now we're all hungry for soup. And sorghum latte. And cornbread. I think that's the new And menu. avocado toast <laughs> with radishes. <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounds like the best possible January oh, like repast yes. ever. Avocado toast with radish, root stew, yes. and then finish it all off with a big sorghum latte. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> you up with a book. Let's down plan this. Pig. Let's plan this for later this week. Thank you for coming in, Crystal. You're welcome. We love you. Love you all, too. Hi, this is Sue Wiley, Lexington broadcaster for over 45 years, and you and I are listening to WLXL 95.7. Great listening over here. Thanks for tuning in to Lexington Community Radio. Do you know where you're going This is the sound of salmonella gyrating on your undercooked chicken. And it looks like mom might be taking it out a little early. Yeah, baby. 
Don't let salmonella get funky with your chicken. On average, one in six Americans will get a foodborne illness this year. So use a thermometer to cook each type of meat to the right temperature. Keep your family safe at foodsafety.gov. Brought to you by the USDA, HHS, and the Ad Council. This is a song about vegetables. They keep you regular. They're real good for you. Some people don't go for prunes. I don't know. I've always found that if they... Water Cornbread on WLXL LPFM 95.7. I'm Weta Michael, and I'm here with my husband Chris Michael and Rona Roberts. And uh, we've just um, finished listening to Crystal Wilkinson read us poems and talk about bread and what's happening at Wild Fig. And now we have a new guest joining us for the second half of the show, a really good friend of mine for, I don't know, more than 20 years, 25 years. Her name is Sherry Hall, and she is a visiting vegan chef from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Sherry has a weird background for a chef, but it's actually similar to my background in a lot of ways. Sherry is the debate coach for Harvard Debate, Harvard University. She's been there for the past 25 years, around there. And um, she and I have had a long cooking relationship what, friendship what is it with debate and cooking man this debaters is, know how to eat oh <laughs> and my, my personal debater is awfully good cook too. well and i think you once pointed out that the organizational skills that we learned in debate translate very well to organizing a kitchen and making prep lists and oh. and all of that and and it's true it, it, 
it seems to make sense to us in a, in a way. And there's a lot of other debaters that have gone into, into to being chefs or restaurant owners. That's true. And years ago, I mean, a long time ago, like back in the 80s before most of you all were born, <laughs> um, Sherry, we would teach at these debate camps in the summer. And so she always had some delicious meal. She was serving forth in her little debate apartment. We would all <laughs> hustle over there and eat. And we kind of... Uh, dined together for many, many years. And she um, also op- operated her own restaurant called Nautilus in Maine for three years, uh, opened it and operated it and coached debate at the same oh, time. <laughs> well, it was just a summer It was a summer restaurant. It was restaurant. a seasonal restaurant. <laughs> where was that? In the- uh, in, um, on Mount Desert Island, which is where Acadia National Park mm. is, the only national park in the northeastern part of the United States. And so it was a very small island, only about 4,000 people year-round. But in the summer, there'd be one to two million tourists that came and through. And she would so. she would tell me stories like, oh, yeah, the lady across the street that picks the crab, <laughs> when she sends it over to the restaurant, it's cold. Right. It's warm. So oh. here's Sherry. I'm like hallucinating about this crab i still think about it to this day that sherry would call up and order a a pound of crab and the neighbor down the street like you would like you would call like ambie or somebody for tomato they she'd be in her kitchen steaming the crabs and picking all the meat out that morning that her husband had caught yeah (laughs) that's that's local in maine that's my kind of local i mean did you make conifer syrup i'm so interested in conifer syrup did you make it conifer syrup never heard of it okay but i did take that the the vegan recipe that uh, is on the Smithtown menu now, the Jack Crab Cake. Uh, when I became a vegan after I, I ran that restaurant, I took some of my favorite dishes that I made there, like the Jack Crab, and took the exact same recipe that I had for those crab cakes that I would make with a crab that came right across the street and now just make it with, with plant-based Jack. products. As, yeah. as much as I love I love you and I'm, I'm down with being vegan and everything, I know that that's not as good as that warm well, crab Well, it meat. probably wasn't. <laughs> but it, it but you know, the one of the tricks in, in vegan cooking, at least for me, is to create kind of fool the mind to thinking that I'm eating that. Yeah. And so create the same textures and smells and colors and flavors. And while a lot of times it's not exactly the same, it's close enough that it triggers that memory. And so I can eat the Jack Crab cake and think that I'm... feel perfectly happy. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, um, and and I wanted to, I want to point out too, that, that, that Sherry operates her own catering company and she specializes in vegan and international cooking. This is all while coaching debate at Harvard and serving on the board of the National Debate Tournament and all <laughs> kinds of things. She's been in debate for more than 30 years, and she's one of the sort of the benchmark people running the national debate um, organization right now. Oh, wow. Um, and she started a really neat initiative called the Healthy Debate Initiative. And she, I mean, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about Healthy Debate Initiative, Sherry, and also like what prompted you to become a vegan and sort of when you started that process. Okay, well, those are two very different Let's things. Let's start with uh, Healthy Debate Initiative. I'll take initiative. the Healthy Debate Initiative. Um, uh, I guess it was about five years ago, though it had been something I'd been thinking about for a while before then, but about five years ago, uh, Wida and I both lost um, some very close friends uh, who were other debate coaches. Um, one of them was only six months older than me. One of them was only about three or four years older yeah. than me. You know, they were uh, very close in our age and um, had, uh, you know, pet left this world way, way too young. And it got me to thinking about uh, how very few people stayed being a debate coach for 
a long time. They burned out really quickly. Um, there's a big problem amongst a lot of debate coaches with being overweight uh, or drinking too much and different things. And, right. and I realized that, you know, we, we, we sort of spend all of our life or so much of our life on the road traveling where it's really hard to follow a diet or hard to follow healthy uh, habits. And I just kind of didn't want to see any more friends leave me. And so I yeah. kind of came up with this. And it, it's sort of just a community bulletin board thing. It started on our community bulletin board. We also now have a Facebook page. So the high school debate community got involved in it as well. And part of it was geared towards trying to make debate tournaments more healthy for the students. And so debate tournaments that would provide breakfast that used to just be coffee and donuts. Maybe right, they lots got, of Maybe they got a donuts. little healthier by putting out some bagels. You know, right. But that was basically it. And then lunch was pizza and maybe a, a Coke with it. And that was, or potato chips. And that was kind of the food that the tournament served. And so... I tried to provide recipes and ideas for people uh, who were responsible for feeding the tournament participants, ways that they could feed a big group um, economically, but, you know, still try to do things more healthy. And uh, it's it's been really great to see in the last five years, like nobody serves just coffee and donuts anymore. Everybody has fresh fruit out at mm, breakfast. Great. Some people yeah. do other things. I mean, some people do it better than others, but it seems like pretty much yeah. everybody, including the high schools, have, well, you have would, made a real you effort You might think this that. is just a little thing, except for the Harvard High School Debate Tournament hosts five mm-hmm thousand high school debaters from around the country and the high school workshop they're all over the world debaters are coming from china from the dominican republic the dominican republic wait so it's not just a little thing and she does all the food when they come to cambridge isn't that incredible it is incredible and and I could also say as a very long time um, debate, debate hanger on <laughs> um, debate first I was a debate spouse. Uh, that's right. <clears throat> debate girlfriend, debate spouse, <laughs> debate mom. Um, it, it's so I think a lot of the mistakes that people make about kids are thinking you feed them anything else to be healthy. And also maybe thinking, well, this is just one debate tournament. You know how bad okay. can it be? Right. But instead, but actually, they're going to debate tournament after debate tournament, right. and well, and that's what uh, yeah. yeah, that's what I realized. That if you add it up, especially for a debate coach who's going to stay with it for a very long period of time, if you add up how much of your life you spend at debate tournaments, if you eat healthy everywhere but there, and then you you know eat crap for <laughs> three days when you're yeah. there or four days when you're there, that adds up to kind of and yeah. you know it's hard to get enough exercise. It's yeah. hard to uh, get enough sleep, and so that, you know we so we kind of share ideas and try to find ways to to make those things better. I did want to add one thing that uh, Wida is a little modest uh, by saying that she has some ties to debate. She did win <laughs> the national debate tournament. I do. Uh, I have a deep love for and, debate. And uh, was the first female in what I call the modern era, <laughs> which just basically means anybody that graduated after me uh, to uh, to win the national debate tournament, Aww. which was a, a great accomplishment. And we have a lot of debaters as investors. Sherry's one of our investors in Smithtown, and her partner Dallas is an investor in Windy Corner in Smithtown. And of course, my longtime business partner Roger um, was well, my and Christy, coach and, and Chrissy and, and Eric. Chris and Eric, yes. And are also debaters. So, it's lots you're, of debaters. You're saturated with debaters. <laughs> debaters are a very unique breed. They do love food, that, which is the other. Well, so let's talk about when, like, 
Sherry did her completed her master's degree in communications here at the University of Kentucky, and and so she was able to come here and live in Lexington for a year. This was oh a long time ago, <laughs> but uh, and at that time you were vegetarian, I remember, but you weren't. I don't think you were vegan. I'm not sure we knew. Yeah, what well, vegan I, I became a vegetarian around the age of I guess about when I was in college, like 1920, somewhere around there. Um, and then, and I think I was still a vegetarian when I when I came to Lexington. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Boston and started to eat seafood. And so I ate seafood for a while. And and then the one thing that had always been my, there's every vegetarian or vegan has that one thing that that's your, that that's your uh, Achilles heel. <laughs> for me, it was fried chicken. And I moved across the street from a Kentucky fried chicken. And so I would just smell that smell every morning. And I, and after about a year, I finally, I finally broke and started eating chicken again. Um, and then I guess in 2010 or so, we had a debate topic where we, mm-hmm. which was about agricultural topic. subsidies. And in fact, uh, Weta, uh, when I talked to her about it, gave me a suggestion for one of the one of the best arguments that we had on the on the whole <laughs> well, of topic. Of course, she did. It was a it was an idea from from Weta, but um, one of the areas was uh, and the and the topic was about the factory farming and concentrated animal feeding organizations. And I started researching that, and I I knew once I started that if I started, I was. <laughs> Never going to be. Able I was to eat going back again. to vegetarian. I didn't realize I would end up being a vegan about you know a month into it. But uh, so that's that's been what, what six years now mm-hmm. that I've been that I've been vegan, and uh, I really have not. People say, don't you find that restrictive? And it's been for me exactly the opposite. I've found it that it has unleashed creativity in cooking that. I never knew I had because I I know the stuff that I like and so I think about you know what what are the elements of this dish or that dish and what plants based products can I find that are similar enough that I can recreate I want, the dishes. That I think I this is interesting. Okay, because there are a lot of different philosophies about being vegan or vegetarian, and I think the interesting thing about what Sherry does is she the and and they're they're. As old as veganism, like, okay, so this, a lot of this goes back to even monks and priests who were vegan. So she tries to recreate particular meat dishes with vegan ingredients. So, for example, what, what, why don't you talk about the smoked bluefish pate? I think but that's, when, just let me interject one yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Just in case people are unfamiliar with the term vegan, let, oh, yeah, would you mind do clarifying that, that first and yeah, then talk so, about smoked? Well, and there's... Yeah. There, Different people have different definitions. Even that's not a, a simple thing. But uh, the the basic uh, definition I think that most people can agree on is that it is somebody who does not consume any animal products. So no meat, no dairy products, um, no eggs. Uh, some vegans also won't eat honey. honey. Some vegans won't eat yeast. Um, some vegans, you know, take it to um, more than just what they eat and view it as, you know, more of a general lifestyle issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to be the, you know, that, that first level of, of pretty much no, no meat, no dairy, and no eggs. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And right. so now about smoked bluefish. Oh, so smoked bluefish pate is uh, one of the dishes that uh, was, I guess, first developed uh or I first had it at Legal Seafood, which is a really okay, wonderful... Okay, Pop, I'm up night. Is that... Are we done? No, you're good. Oh, okay. Legal <laughs> Seafood is a, uh, a, a very popular restaurant uh, in Boston, and they had this dish on there, and uh, my partner, Dallas, 
really loved it. And so he figured out how to make it himself. And we would go buy the whole bluefish at the fresh at the hay market and take it home and throw it on the smoker and make our own bluefish pate. And it was just one of those things. And it became this legendary debate dish, and, Dallas's <laughs> smoked bluefish and, and, pate. And, and, and we didn't, Chris like it I too. Can, I can eat a quart at a time. I, I brought them some so down good. to have at the restaurant and they... Uh, I consumed it in one I night. I think they ate it in one night. So, right? so it was one of those things where I just gave it a lot of thought and I thought, you know, what, what can I do to recreate this dish? And so... Um, we smoked some bluefish, and this is on the on the menu that we're going to. We smoked have. some eggplant, not bluefish. I'm fish. sorry, smoked eggplant. <laughs> but I didn't want it to be just like baba ganoush. Just the smoked eggplant period would not be the right consistency because the bluefish pate had a grainy texture to it. So I tried to think about what could give it the grainy texture. So we threw in some artichoke hearts, and then it's you know also got some flavorings, and then a cream cheese, a vegan cream cheese uh, that I make from cashew nuts. Yes. She and makes this cream cheese out of so just nuts and water. It's soaking. You soak raw cashews in water for twelve hours or more, and puree them together in a high speed blender with salt, <coughs> a little lemon, and water, and it creates an incredible, like vegan sour cream. Sherry made a vegan chili. We put the <coughs> cashew sour cream on there, and the and the pat. Then she added some into the the puree of smoked eggplant. I mean, you'd be shocked. How it sounds great. It is yeah. so good. I, I make um, I make cashew nut milk, um, but I have never thought to pull. And it, it in is the so simple. Of, yeah. it, is, it, is, it is simple. It is really, really simple. It just takes a little bit of of time. And so, uh, you know, that's an example of one of the types of things where. And the jack crab cakes is another one, though. That one I did. Somebody else had done that, and you, that was, you, uh, and that was right. my introduction to jackfruit and. Uh, then I kind of played with it and used my recipe instead of their recipe to actually make the crab She's cakes, made, which... like, the seitan bourguignon, you know, <laughs> so, like, instead of beef bourguignon, seitan bourguignon. Seitan is, is a really gluten from wheat, yeah. And that's a really specific way to think about, mm-hmm. you know, vegan cooking. And it's, I don't know, I've learned, I've been, we've been cooking together the last couple of days because tomorrow night Sherry's our guest chef down at Smithtown doing a vegan dinner, and, and she wrote the menu, and so she's, I'm her sous chef this week. Um and it's been incredible. You're to never learn. a sous chef. Oh, that's true. And, and oh, you yeah. sold that. You sold that dinner out, as I understand. Well, that, we, right? our theme song for the our theme song for the week so far is Vegan Wasteland <laughs> because there's a guy who actually got a blog that's really popular that's traveling for what's it called, Sherry? We'll travel for vegan. We'll food. travel for vegan food, <laughs> and he goes all around the country to find vegan places to eat. Um, so. Anyway, some of these recipes Sherry has written down, and with her permission, we'll put them on Savory in Kentucky um, so that you guys Perfect. can see um, some of the dishes that she's been working on and, and making. Uh, one of them, the main dish, is, the, is a tofu um, yeah, it's Messina. A, right. Messina is a is a town in Sicily. And so this is a Sicilian preparation. And there they call it spada, uh, swordfish. It's a swordfish dish. And that's where I first had it was in Sicily. Yeah. And uh, and I loved it. And so I thought, well, tofu is pretty similar to, to swordfish in this dish. And so it's uh, seared swordfish with a sauce with uh, Sicilian green olives, uh, capers, little bit of tomato, a little bit of garlic, lemon, mm-hmm. white wine, and then covered with thinly sliced potatoes on the top that kind of s- I know s- that kind of seal it in so that it does the, sound the, so good. The, the sauce and sort of steams uh, with the with the fish in it, or in this case, the tofu in it. 
Yeah. Do you do you make that tofu? Do you press it so that it's yeah you have yeah mm-hmm. you, you have definitely want the only time I don't press tofu is if I'm making like scrambled eggs or breakfast tacos mm-hmm. or something where the water is not really a problem it's going to cook out. But any time that you are um, using tofu in a in a dish where you're going to sauce it, you've got to press it so that it can then soak up uh, your sauce. Otherwise, the consistency is wrong, and it'll be too watery. Too and, crumbly, kind and, of. Yeah. yeah. But if you're making scrambled eggs, then it's fine for it to be crumbly. A, a tofu scramble, then that's fine. But other than that, you always want to press it. Oh, cool. Well, thank you, Sherry, for thank you for oh, coming yes, on our thank show. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming all the way down here to, to cook with me. <laughs> oh, I was it's so it's good to escape the warm weather in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've done our best, but our best wasn't very good, I'm afraid, this week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, um, it's time for a food safety tip because um, every week we have to. Yes. Chris, we need theme music for the food I, safety I tip. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. Wait, hold on. Okay, wait. There's. Wash your hands before you eat. This is great. Wash with soap and water. Wash with soap and water. Your hands are clean. You're ready to eat. Okay, after that beautiful song from the Wiggles, I don't know that I really have to do the food safety tip. <laughs> that was the food safety tip. <laughs> well, I found this thing because everybody's got a cold right now. So I, I, you know, the USDA is our friend when it comes to food, food safety. And uh, hand washing, there's a little statistic, reduces respiratory illnesses 16 to 21% in the general population. So just wash your hands out there, people. (laughs) A lot. It says, uh, my my show plan that I'm reading says for at least 20 minutes, but I bet that's 20 20 seconds. seconds. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know, if everyone... (laughs) I think if you washed your... If if we all washed our hands for 20 minutes, there'd be no disease because no one would be transmitting. You have no time to transmit. We wouldn't be doing anything at all. Um, Just a little reminder of when you're supposed to wash your hands. And I mean, there's another bad typo there. After touching your farce, no, your face. <laughs> uh, you know, anytime you touch your face, nose, eyes, or hair, um, especially when you're preparing food, you should wash your hands. After smoking, um, after treating anyone who's sick or treating a wound, let's say you get a little cut in the kitchen um, using your knife, don't forget to wrap that. Put a little finger cut on or a glove, and don't forget to wash your hands again, you know, or if you're helping someone out with something that got a little cut. Definitely after you use the bathroom, always wash your hands after after handling raw seafood, meat, or eggs. I know that's like the number one rule of food safety is the hand washing thing, but actually it's one people forget all the time. And I will say this, if you do work in a food service establishment and you're using gloves, uh, one of the reasons I, I dislike gloves, besides the environmental consequences of tons of rubber gloves going on and off hands, uh, in food services, it doesn't necessarily stop the f- spread of germs if you're touching mm-hmm. your face with mm-hmm. your gloved hand. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people don't even realize they've cross-contaminated their gloves because their hands don't feel dirty. Mm-hmm. So just be aware. And so I'm not a big glove proponent. Sorry, health department. I'm not going to go with you on that. I'm, I'm, I'm against those gloves for a lot of reasons. So that's the food safety tip. Your hands. Wash Rhoda, you got anything for the calendar? I didn't have one thing. We have two things. One one involves you, Weta. 
Um, but the first is Southern SOG, the Southern Sustainable okay. Ag Working Group. It's, it's drawing ever nearer, the 27th through the 30th. It's here in Lexington celebrating its 25th um, conference. It's a 25th conference celebra- celebrating 25 years of supporting um, growers, growers supporting growers who grow organically and sustainably. And the, the lineup of workshops and field trips is simply spectacular, plus evening meals that are all Kentucky. And oh, wow. Can anyone go? Yes, anyone can go. And you can also just buy tickets for the meals at night, at least for the big one, which has at least... It has at least 25 Kentucky ingredients in it, I know, oh, wow. for 25 years. Wow. Uh, right here in the in deep, cold, dark midwinter. <laughs> um, so those are fabulous people. Support them if you can. And we put the link again to their um, conference on our on our Facebook page just today. It's southern, it's ssawg.org if you want to go just look. Um, and then there's a an event I don't know much about, but I've agreed to be part of it, and I think Weta, maybe you have too. I'm not sure. Mm. Uh, called Prep on the UK campus. Oh yes, Prep. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. I should have. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. And it's an open event. I think it's free. It's free. on. I think it's in the C Auditorium in the in the Agriculture Building. Mm-hmm. Um, people from Glean, Kentucky, which is a. Um, Oh, I'm trying to say foraging. It's not the right word. Um, um, not foraging, but... Um, but it's a, it is a gleaning yeah, enterprise gleaning. that takes food that would otherwise not be used and makes sure that it gets into the hands of people who need it. Um, food Connection, which is U- at UK, Kentucky Proud, and others will be there, including Wida and me, I believe. Yeah. Um, for a fairly short one-evening interactive conversation that Community Action is um, is hosting. And that's on February... 25 i think it starts at six mm-hmm. february 26 25th six to eight okay and it's free and open to the public and if you have any interest in local food local food culture you should come because there's all kind it sounds really neat there are a lot of people that are going to be there talking about different food issues and accessibility issues especially that's what i appreciate is that this is an this is an, a direct um intention on the part of community action to move the conversation about fantastic local food into a room where we talk about how does everybody get to eat it, including people who don't have a ton of money. Um, exactly. And so that's, I, I love that conversation. Yeah, that's that's the heart and soul of what we do. That's we, right. Yeah. Well, that's a great thing for the calendar, and I'm glad you said that because that's a good reminder for me, too, that I'm participating. Um, okay, well, I think that's our show for today. Everybody wash your hands. Everybody, everybody <laughs> wash your hands. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Crystal. Bye, Chris. Thanks, Bye, everybody. Rita. See you next week. Chica.
I plague my vegetarian. No cats and dogs, I'm not a veterinarian. Strictly collard greens and a occasional steak. Those on my plate. Asparagus tips look yummy, yummy, yummy. Candy M's inside my tummy. A collage of good eats. Some snacks, some nice treats. Apple sauce and some nice red beets. This is what we snacked on when we're questing. No second guessing. I don't eat no hair. Hey, it's with cause I high cholesterol. I dig it, dig it, dig it. Hey, yo, fight. Do you eat them? No tip. Hey. 